So we are in Luke chapter 12. Last week we were, we were uh, dealing with a parable that Jesus taught as he dealt with greed. We got to start back there again simply because I can't break into the middle of the context and you not see what's going on. I need you to see what's going on. So we're going to begin reading in verse 13. I'm going to make a very brief comment and then we're going to move on to our text for today. You'll see how it plays out or how it works together in just a moment. So it says in verse 13 of chapter 12, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Men, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to, him, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus had been teaching about hypocrisy. And in the midst of his teaching, this hypocrisy that leads us to, to live towards men one way and stand before God in another, that lends itself to seeking to please men rather than God, seeking not to offend men rather than not to offend God. Je Jesus is dealing with this. And in the midst of that, this man interrupts and says, Jesus, you got to do this you got to tell my brother to share his stuff with me. It's got nothing to do with what he's teaching. It's got nothing to do with what he's been saying. And rather than stand as the one who's going to mediate that argument or mediate and judge in that argument, Jesus says, no, you need to watch out for all covetousness. You need to watch out for greed. And he begins to deal with the dangers of greed. Greed will never be satisfied. Greed finds its value, satisfaction, and security in its possessions. Greed makes good things, God things, and greed cannot be rich toward God. That was the points from last week's sermon. But greed is destructive. and sets possessions in a place, in a place that's not good for us. And up to this point, Jesus had been teaching his disciples. Then he begins to teach this man and at large the crowds. But as we'll see here, he's about to redirect his comments in light of this teaching on greediness, on light of this teaching on covetousness. Jesus understands that there's something particular here that his disciples need to hear something that's in particular important in particular for those who would follow him for those that would trust him for those that would seek to obey him and so we pick it up in verse 22 as Jesus changes and focuses again on his disciples it says this and he said to his disciples he's no longer speaking to the crowds he's no longer speaking to the man his comments are directed at his disciples and he said to his disciples Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. 
Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with, a, with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The brothers fighting over this inheritance needed to hear about greed. The, brother, the crowds needed to hear about greed. The disciples needed to hear about the dangers of greed. But the disciples especially needed to hear about this issue of anxiety and worry. Jesus deals with them speaking directly to those who would follow him. He deals with this issue four, five times in the text in four different verses. Sorry, four times in five different verses. Verse 22, right out of the gate, he commands his disciples not to be anxious about life or the things that, the, the necessities of life. Verses 25 and 26, he points out the pointlessness of that kind of anxiety and worry. Verse 29, Jesus commands again, this time, to not be worried about food or drink. Verse 30 having begun to transition from what they shouldn't be doing and transitioning to what they should be giving their lives to, he gives one more command, fear not, little flock. See, Jesus' concern for his followers is not simply that they would be overwhelmed with this desire for an abundance, like that they would be given to going out simply so they could have more and more and more. But that they would be undermined by this desire just simply for the basic necessities of this life and that their lives and that their joy and that, their, and, and, and that all the good that he had intended for them would be stolen simply because they thought they needed more to eat, simply because they scared they weren't going to have enough to drink. Last week I pointed out to you as we talked about greed that you and I, whether we realize it or not, whether we think about it in these terms or not, you and I were created by God to enjoy the fullness of his abundance, to enjoy the unlimited, unhindered fullness of his abundance. That's the picture we get in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are created and he places them in a garden and he says, every tree is yours. Everything is yours. 
except for one tree. Your life is going to have purpose, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, work the ground, and it will, it will submit under your hand and it will bear fruit. See, we were intended to be full of abundance, to enjoy the abundance of God's creation. But it didn't end at his creation. It didn't end at the horizontal things that are out there, the, the possessions that we could have had. It didn't end at the food that we would eat. We were, able, we were able in that moment, in that time, we would have been able to enjoy the abundance of relationship together. Relationships that were not divided and filled with strife. Relationships that were in no way shameful or condemning of each other. That God, He created man. He formed him of the dust. He bends over into creation and He breathes life into this man. And He says, It's not good that He's alone. I have more for Him. And so He puts the man to sleep. He takes out the rib and He forms the woman and He presents the woman. And Adam is flabbergasted. He is astonished. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We had the abundance of intimacy, the abundance of acceptance, the abundance of belonging, the abundance of love without shame or secrecy or strife and division. But it didn't end there. The abundance of the creation, the abundance of relationship together was supplemented, was overwhelmingly covered with the abundance of our access to the Creator who in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit put all things together and He looked down on us and He says, I want you to be with me. And he would walk with them in the cool of the garden. They were unhindered in their access to him. They could speak to him and hear them and hear him. They could walk with him and be with him in real and tangible ways. But enters sin. And the one thing he said they couldn't have, they demanded. The one fruit he said they couldn't eat, they ate. And they gave every bit of it up. Not only did they lose the abundance of all he had provided in his creation, they, lost, they, lost, sorry, they lost the right to have it. They would never be able to earn it back. And so it is with every person who has ever lived since. The one thing we didn't lose in the fall into sin as it pertains to the abundance of God, the only thing we didn't lose was the inherent desire that's woven into our being for it. We all Long for this abundance, and we all seek to fill that desire in every way we can. And some seek that desire in the fulfillment of greedy, greedily seeking gain, seeking more and more and more. And Jesus says, Beware, beware, it will eat you whole. And to his believers, 
he says, not only should you beware of greed, but you should stop your worrying. Worry should cease. You see, the truth is in both cases, both greed and in worry, worry and in greed, there is too great a desire, too strong a focus on, too great a hope in things, stuff, the trinkets that this world seemingly offers us as a replacement for the abundance that God says could have been ours. See, worry and greed are opposite ends of the same spectrum of making our goods our gods. There's two paths to the same idolatrous destination, two sides to the same coin. Where there is greed, there will be worry. Because of greed, you will never be satisfied and you'll worry about getting more and getting more and getting more and you'll be kept awake at night about how to get more and how to get more and how to get more. And where there is worry, there will be greed. You'll be so concerned about what little you have and what more you think you need. You cannot help but in your flesh go out and fight to get more of it. The image of this moment where Jesus is teaching and tens of thousands of people, myriads of people, it says, myriads have gathered and they are trampling over one another. That's the image of us in this life worrying and greedily fighting. And Jesus says, Christian, quit. Stop. Quit worrying. And he commands us these things, not because he's annoyed, not because, he's, not because worry is a nuisance to him, but he knows that it's not good for us. See, maybe you've heard the saying, I've, I've, I've heard it, and I'm, I live with a worrier, so this is a saying that gets said around our house a lot, and, and I appreciate it for what it is, but the saying is, you, worry is like a rocking chair, it gives you a lot to do, and it doesn't get you anywhere. You know, maybe you've heard that. And I think for its purpose, I think it's a good statement, I think it's a good reminder, but it's not actually accurate. You see, worry gives you a lot to do, and it gives you a huge well, we can't call it a reward. But it does result in something. But it's never good. You see, there's a lot of going places when you worry. But none of them are ever very good. And one of the, one of the commentaries I read from R. Kent Hughes is a, is, is a pastor that, that preached through Luke, and he's um, established that into a commentary. He quoted from a Danish theologian, Soren Kierkegaard, and I appreciate this perspective. Warriors feel every blow that never fails, and they cry over things they will never lose. You see, the reality is, is that when we worry, we're worrying about things that we can't guarantee will happen. We're concerned about things that haven't happened. We're living in a place that doesn't even exist yet, but acting as if it's already happened. Well, I'm not going to have enough to eat. I'm not going to have enough to drink. I, do you live in that moment already? Are you already there? How could you possibly know? We can't see past the end of our nose, for crying out loud. Why do we act like we can tell the future? Another 
commentary I read from helped spell this out so clearly. I'm just going to read it to you. The words are going to be on the screen. It's long. I would encourage you to follow along so that you can grasp it as I read it. But I wanted you to hear it because it just demonstrates the depth that this hurts us in. Far from anything, or far from adding anything, anxiety always subtracts. Worry is a thief. It steals our time, our thoughts, turn to our troubles. And then rather than praying about them or doing the thing that God called us to do, we waste time worrying about them. Now he's going to show us the different ways that worry takes from us. Worry steals our rest. We lie awake at night anxious about tomorrow and then we get up too tired to work hard and this only adds to our anxiety. There's this perpetual cycle that we end up in and just get more anxious and more anxious and more anxious and we fight harder and fight harder and fight harder and become less restful and less restful. Worry steals our health as we suffer the physical effects of our anxiety. Worry steals our obedience as it tempts us to other sins like irritability, addiction, and laziness, or on the other hand, overwork. Worry steals our hope as we feel the worst about the future. Have you ever worried about anything that's good? I mean, just think about that for just a second. Like, oh man, I I don't know if I can handle that. That's going to be too good. Like, we anticipate those things, right? Like, we look forward to them. Worry always assumes the worst of the future. All kinds of difficulties arise in our minds, most of which never come to pass. He goes on, what a sad waste it all is. Worry shrivels the soul, robbing our joy, leaving us ill-equipped to face the spiritual and emotional challenges of each new day. Few things are discouraging to our spirit or as destructive of our contentment or as detrimental to our witness as the anxious worries of a troubled heart. Jesus commands us not to worry, not because he's just annoyed by it, but because he cares for his disciples and he knows that there's nothing productive about worry, only subtractive. I don't even know if that's really a word. It must be a catcher didn't catch it, so... But you you know what I'm saying. It subtracts, it removes, it steals from us. Notice what he doesn't command in this passage, though. He doesn't command us to find a new circumstance. He doesn't command us to go looking for something better. He doesn't command us to change the, the place that we live in. He doesn't say fight to make everything better. He doesn't say to... Rid yourself of troubles. He just simply says, don't worry about them when you face them. Don't worry. Now, that's tough. I know it's tough. I live with a worrier. I told you, I think I mentioned that already. I live with a worrier, and so I know what it is to say, stop worrying. Right? Because now you're worried about worrying. It's like, oh, I mean, I can't quit it. How am I going to stop it? And again, it's this cycle. We end up in this place where all we can do is worry. And somebody says, stop it. And all of a sudden, we're like in this, oh, I can't quit. But he doesn't leave us there. In fact, his commands to not worry are followed up by some of the best news we could ever hear. His commands become invitations for us to enjoy something much more than the things we're worried about. 
I think there's at least four things. There's five I'm going to show you, but four things clearly that Jesus calls us to enjoy more. He invites us to acknowledge the capability of the one who is able to do all he promises. He invites us to acknowledge it, to realize it, to to see it and know it. He's like, look, consider the ravens. Consider the ravens. And they're like rats with wings. They're a nuisance to us. Like we're always trying to get them to go away. Consider them. We put scarecrows in fields because we don't want to feed them. It's striking that these birds that are such a bother to us are fed at the hand of God. They don't store up. They don't put things away. But every year they're out here eating the worms in the, in the yard. They're pecking on farmers' corn. See, God feeds the ravens. Aren't you worth more than ravens, Jesus says? Oh, doesn't, don't, don't you hold more value than ravens? Yes. Yes, we do. Wouldn't he feed you? How much more would he ensure that you have the food you need? How much more would he make sure that you are able to have the sustenance for your life? Consider the flowers, the lilies. Lilies. They're pretty to look at. But they're here today and they're gone tomorrow and we're chopping them up and we're throwing them in the fire. The fact is is that even more than Solomon, Solomon, the richest man that had ever lived that they had known, the richest man and possibly if you evaluated his wealth in light of the the today's today's money and you did the, 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 I don't know what you call it, Converted it for, trans, for, for inflation and things like that. He might still be the richest man that's ever lived. I don't know. I don't know how much he really had. But he was wealthy according to their standing. He was the wealthiest man they had ever known. And Jesus says, hey, he didn't even dress as good as God adorns the lilies. And aren't you of more value than some flowers in the field. Yes, I absolutely am. Wouldn't he feed you? Wouldn't he feed you? And and, and not only do we look at him and his capability, but we have to notice our own incapability. You can't even, Jesus says, you can't even add a second. You can't add a a span of time to your life. You can't even extend the days in which you live. If you can't do something like that, why would you worry about all this other stuff? If you can't do something that small, why would you worry about all the things you can't control? You are limited. But doesn't he value you more than flowers in the field and ravens plucking the worms out of the ground? Yes. Let's acknowledge it. 
You see, the reality is, is, that, is, is that worry actually can start in the fact that we just don't know it. We just don't know what God is capable of. But remember who he's speaking to. Jesus is speaking to the disciples, the people that had seen Jesus, heard Jesus, watched him work powerful miracles. So the excuses for knowing his power were removed. But we must start at this knowledge. Don't you know what he can do? Don't you know your own limitations? Don't you know how much he values you? Let's acknowledge it. But we can't stop at the knowledge. We can't stop at what happens in our head. We've got to trust him. And that's the next point. That's the next thing I think we're going to see in the text is that Jesus' commands to not worry are an invitation to trust alone in the one who is trustworthy. Trust alone in the one who actually can do all that he says he can do. Yes, we need to know it, but more than that, we need to trust it. We need to see that Jesus does, he, he is going to do what he says he's going to do. Again, consider the birds. Consider the flowers. Consider who you are in light of, or in contrast to them. And, and, and more than that, more value than these. Do you believe? Do you believe that he will do it? Do you trust that he will do it? You see, Jesus looks at them, and in the midst of this conversation, or in the midst of this instruction to them, he's not rebuking them, but in concern and care for them, he says, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith, because he knows they're worried. He knows they're anxious. He knows they're afraid. And they're fighting hard in all the wrong directions. Oh, you of little faith. Faith. In the Greek, that's one word for that phrase, O you of little faith. And it's a word used five times in the scripture, four times in Matthew, one time here in Luke. And in every case that it's used, it is Jesus speaking. He's speaking to his disciples in the boat as, as, as they're on the sea. They're in the boat. The storm is raging. And they're scared to death. And they go to Jesus. Oh, we're going to die. We're going to die. you got to do something. We're going to die. <laughs> And Jesus stands up, and before he does anything, he says, Oh, you of little faith. And Peter steps out onto the water and begins to walk across the water to his Savior, who has already walked on the water. And he begins to look around, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he sees the waves, and he feels the wind blowing, and he begins to get scared. Jesus reaches down and takes him by the hand, Oh, you of little faith. And as he addresses the worry in and among his people, oh, you of little faith. You see, what I don't think Jesus is saying, because he knows us, is that we don't have faith at all. This little of it is actually pointed at one who can actually do something. Let me explain that a little different. Everybody in the world expresses faith of some kind. There is great faith happening within every one of us. But he calls our faith little, not because it's the little bit of it, because it's placed in little things. He calls our faith weak because the object of our faith is weak. 
He's saying, oh, you of little faith, because you trust powerless, impotent, simple trifles and trinkets to satisfy you. And you think, if I don't have those, then I am not going to have what I need. I'm going to be hungry. I'm going to be thirsty. How in the world am I going to make it if I don't have what I need? And we trust all the wrong things. We put our faith in ourselves, and yet we can't even add a second to our life. Our faith is weak, our faith is little, because the object of it is little. I deal with this regularly. I deal with it all the time. Oh, well, I, I trust Jesus. I trust him. I'm telling you, I trust him. Why are you so anxious? Why are you so afraid? Why are you so worried? Why are you seeking to control and manipulate every little situation? Why are you seeking such, such to act as if you can do something that you have no ability to do? Why? If you trust him. See, the truth is that Jesus knows that we trust him. We trust him just enough that we know we're going to get life when we die. But most of us have never trusted to, to, to follow him, to believe in him for every moment of our day. And we believe he's going to be there that day we need. Oh, okay, I, I, all right. I, I, think, I think he's going to be there. But until I get there, i got to make sure I get mine. Let me qualify this. I want to be very careful about this. Anxiety is a real disorder that we deal with in this country. Huge in this country. In a place with so much abundance and so much stuff and so much advantage. It's crazy that we're the ones dealing with anxiety more than places with much less. It might just demonstrate something to us. The more we get, the more anxious we are. It's crazy. The reality is it's true. The National Institute of Mental Health says that it's the most common mental illness in the U.S. And I don't want you to think I'm trying to condemn you, trying to heap more weight upon you. I don't want you to think that I'm trying to hurt you in any way. If you struggle with this, I want you to know I feel for you. If you need medicine or you need treatment to deal with your anxiety, please keep doing it. Don't stop. Don't think that, oh, my, the pastor said that I just got to trust Jesus. These treatments, this medication may be the very thing that gives your mind the space to begin to trust him so that the process of healing can actually start. But we cannot disregard his words. And just like a, an, a, a person who's morbidly obese and maybe just person who's just regularly obese ends up on blood pressure medicine and they lose some weight and they no longer have to take that. I think if we can begin to believe and trust fully in Jesus, we can begin to see our anxiety and our stress and our worry begin to dissipate. Just like he's able to heal a body, Jesus by faith is able to heal your mind. But until that day comes, until the healing happens, you keep pressing in to trust him and take the medication that's necessary and seek the treatment that's necessary. 
But don't disregard his words. Don't miss the fact that the root of anxiety, at the root of, of, of worry, at the very base of them, is our fallenness and our broken, it's our sin to trust in everything more than we trust in him. I think the point he's making is that when the object of our faith is strong, then we become strong. We're made strong, not because we are innately strong, but because the object of our faith is strong. We begin to bear the resemblance of the one in whom we trust. And so he invites us to trust him. He invites us to see his capability. And he invites us, the third thing I would draw out of this is he invites us to freedom under the authority of the one who is sovereign He invites us to live outside of the slavery and the weight and the burden that that, that worry and anxiety give us. He says, you don't have to live in that, that world anymore. You don't have to deal with those stresses anymore. You don't have to think on those things anymore. You don't have to see. You don't have to be ruled in that way anymore. You see, I think... When we begin to grasp this and begin to get it, we'll understand it and we'll be able to believe it more fully. It's interesting to me that Jesus says, consider the ravens, how they eat. Consider the lilies, how they are adorned. And in Christ, he doesn't come and bring everybody physical wealth. But he comes bringing them an abundance of the blessings of God. He says, the kingdom is yours. I love this verse. I love the way he says it. Verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You see, some of us don't struggle with whether or not he can do it. Some of us struggle with whether or not he wants to do it. I go to bed with myself every night. I know, I know, and I am learning more and more the depths of my depravity. As much as I've learned of my own sinfulness, it concerns me that I believe until the day I go home and be with him, until he comes and gets me, I believe I'm going to find that I'm more and more sinful than I can imagine today. And that, whew, is shocking. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure. He wants to do this. He wants to bless you. He wants to throw the abundance upon you. He wants to lavish you with all the good things that he has for you. He wants to overwhelm you and cover you up with all that is in his kingdom. The king who sits in the throne room says it's yours. If you'll know me and trust in me, it's all yours. I am giving you the whole kingdom. I'm giving you everything I own. He's making us as his children. He's making us princes and princesses. He's saying it's all yours and, 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 and you can have it and you can enjoy it. All the things that were lost at the creation, all the fullness of abundance that you had, I'm giving it back to you. Not only can I, but I want to. I desire to. It is my good pleasure to heap on you all the goodness that you had lost. And so, yes, we may not eat abundance of food in this life. 
but he gives us a spiritual food that will feed us forever. We may not have as many fine clothes as we'd like, but in Christ we stand in his kingdom adorned in the beauty that comes in Christ, adorned in the beauty of Jesus Christ's righteousness. We are clothed standing in the kingdom, dressed by our God in the robes of righteousness, eating a spiritual food, looking forward to a feast that will never end. Oh, and it is his good pleasure. See, the thing is, is that this happens, this happens not under the rule of worry and fret over what you can get in this life. It happens in being free to live under the sovereign rule of the God who created and then chose to save and in salvation says, I'm your father. And it is my good pleasure to give you everything you lost. Jesus calling us not to worry is an invitation into this. Stepping into it and, and believing it and owning it, trusting it and making it fully ours. And then finally, Jesus' commands to not worry are an invitation to live for the purpose of the one whose plans bear eternal fruit. When we're worried, we turn our attention to all the wrong things. We work harder for the things that cause us to worry to begin with. And we work harder and harder and harder. We end up in this perpetual cycle. We're working for all the wrong things. When I was getting out of the military, I was a helicopter mechanic and had learned a great trade in the military. But I was of no use in the civilian world because to be an aircraft mechanic in the civilian world, you have to be licensed. So because of my experience, I was able to go... And, and just take the test. I didn't have to go to school. I didn't have to, because I'd built the experience. I'd been trained by the military. I didn't have to go to school for a couple of years to learn uh, the, the basics of aircraft maintenance. I was just able to, to go in and take the tests. And I was nervous. Oh, man, I was nervous. I was scared to death. I was worried. I was anxious. And as I thought, I'm getting out of the military. This is the way I'm supposed to provide for my family. How in the world? This is too big for me. And I felt the weight of that. The test was three written exams, one oral exam, and then one, uh, not oral like they're going to look in my mouth, but I had to answer questions to a board of people. And then I had to go and demonstrate that I knew what I was doing, and I had to do a practical exam. It was a, it was a course of about three months of, of getting ready and taking these tests. At the beginning of that three months, oh, whew, I'm telling you, I was worried. But more than being worried, I was a new Christian. And somewhere along the way, God reminded me of this passage. I don't know. I can't even remember who, whether it was through some sermon I heard or some friend that spoke to me, some Christian I knew. I, I can't remember. But I remember this teaching. And I remember these words saying, that, hey, don't, don't store up for yourself here. Don't, don't give yourself to the pursuit of these things that, that are burned up tomorrow. Be willing to get rid of your possessions. Don't, don't, worry about, don't, don't worry about building wealth here. Live with a kingdom mindset. And somewhere in the midst of all that worry and the stress and the pressure of taking those tests and thinking this was the only way I was going to be able to provide for my family, I began to pray, God, if this is not what you'd have me do, then don't let me pass these tests. 
but show me what's next. And something happened when that switch flipped. Something changed. I still studied. I still prepared to get ready for the test. I mean, I wasn't like I was being stupid about it, right? I mean, I'm not asking you not to study. I'm not asking you not to put some money away. I'm not asking you to not have a retirement plan. I'm not asking you those things. That's not what Jesus is asking you. He's simply saying that live every day today as if God owns it and recognize the only need you have in this life is the one he plans for you today. You don't know that tomorrow is yours. You don't know that you're going to be here tomorrow. Why in the world are we so worried about what tomorrow holds when all we have is the moment we're in? When we save and store away, it's not a bad thing. When we seek to study and get ready for tests, it's not a bad thing. But when they begin to consume us and all we can do is worry and think on these things and how in the world am I going to get this done? That's the thing that Jesus is teaching against. And that's the thing he's saying, that's not even what you're called to do. You see, our job is not simply to store up. Our job is not simply to build a kingdom here. Our job is to prepare and be ready for the kingdom that is to come. The kingdom that he has already given you. The kingdom that he said is yours If he lets you starve to death in this life, you wake with him in heaven and waiting for the day. Waiting for the day that he comes and makes all things new. What he will never leave you absent of and without ever again is his sovereign rule in your life and his eternal plan for your eternal purpose. You see, what we can't do is extend our lives by any amount of kingdom we can establish here, but what we can do every day until he comes again is glorify him. Seek his kingdom. Strive after the things that are eternal. Give ourselves fully to those things that would honor him and glorify him. See, that's what we can do. And that's what he says we should do. That's what Jesus is teaching. He's not saying be like the birds. He's not saying be like the flowers. But look at them and learn from them. We don't have to worry. He's given plenty of reason why we shouldn't. There's a video I want to share with you because I think it's the answer we provide in every other way if we look to any other thing. There's an answer we, we get, and it's never as good as the one Jesus gives. So let's, let's watch this video, and then we'll, we'll be finished. Go. <laughs> Go. Well, tell me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes, yes, that's it. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, 
I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here, you're there. Stop it! I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. It is. Then stop it. I, I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, childhood. No, no, no. No, we, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop. <laughs> So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good go. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't just say stop it? I mean, aren't you glad that he gave you all the reasons in the world why worry is not a necessity in your life ever again? You can stop it because of what he's able to to do. You can stop it because you trust him so fully. You can stop it because you live under the sovereign rule of a powerful, almighty God. You can stop it because you don't give yourself to those empty purposes anymore, but to the eternal purpose of our King. If I were to summarize this, I would say it this way. Jesus's commands to not worry are an invitation to forever enjoy the greatest of all treasures him everything we lost he has given it back in himself it is yours so do not worry because he has come and he is yours if you ever feel the pressures of anxiety and worry remember this will he meet my need Think of the cross. Will he be there when I need him? Think of the cross. Can he do it? Think of the cross. Am I valuable enough? Does he desire it? Think of the cross. He's done it. He's done it. He's made it yours by faith. Christians, disciples, do not worry. Enjoy the great treasure that is yours. But I need to speak real quickly to unbelievers. The truth is this passage is directed at disciples, people who follow, who trust, who obey. If you don't, if you're counting on your religious effort, if you're counting on some good thing, if you're looking to this world to provide you hope, you should be worried. 
it's right to be anxious because apart from Christ, there is no hope. Let that anxiety, let that worry, let that fear be indication that you need to run to the cross. And with every believer already gathered there, fall on your face, repent of your sin, and plead for his forgiveness, and hear him if you will. Your Father who is in heaven is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If you are not a believer today, let me plead with you. Become a believer today. Trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, as your Savior, and as your access to eternal life and the great treasure that we have lost. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you. We need more of you. We need more and more and more of you. Father, would you let us Encourage us, embolden us, actually. Would you embolden us to pursue more of you and quit pursuing the things of this world, trusting that we will have what we need for this life so long as you let us reside here? With an ever-growing perspective of the kingdom to come, the kingdom that is. Father, help us. I pray these things. I, I feel compelled to, to pray this, Father. That you would confront, confront the hearts of the religious and confront the heart of the sinful alike. That our only freedom from worry and anxiety is in a freedom from our sin. Help us to trust in your son. And if there's those here today that have never trusted, Father, will you move on them in this moment? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.